If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and as Mr. Taylor and I are getting ready to record our second show for September 2018, there's a lot of stuff going on, suddenly popping up online. I mean, literally seconds before you and I sat down to record this thing, the Grinch trailer for Illuminations Entertainment's new take on the Grinch popped up online, and Drew and I actually hit the pause button so we could go take a look at this thing and then come on back, and... What's your take? And again, this is a trailer. I'm a little confused. It's not a lot of the classic Grinch that you know and love, either from the animated short or the Ron Howard movie. Mm -hmm. It looks like they definitely borrowed a little bit from Prep and Landing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about it. I'm very confused about the ox or whatever the little his little sidekick is. Yeah, Max has been joined by a muskox, evidently. Forgive me for being cynical, folks, but I looked at that and thought, ah, there's the plush. And Yaro Chani and, and Scott Mosier, who are the directors in this project, the original book from 57, Drew, is 57 pages long. That's it. Right. Which worked out fine for the 66 TV special, because, yeah, you know, you could get 22 minutes of story out of this thing. On the other hand, those of us who suffered through the 2000 live-action cringe, when you look at that and what Jim Carrey did, and, and don't get me wrong, they got a wonderful costume and an amazing set design, but I can't help but wonder if Howard had got the casting that he wanted with, with Jack Nicholson, and Nicholson had opted to play it straight, whether that movie would have worked. Yeah. When I heard they hired Benedict Cumberbatch as the voice of the Grinch, it was like, oh man, yes, that guy, he would be great. And I just don't get the sense from this trailer that they're using him to his full advantage. But again, this is only two minutes of the movie and the, the stuff that thought that would help sell it. And given that this is dropped in September, do you think this is the final trailer? No, I think there'll be at least one more that they'll play, you know, when they probably run the Jim Carrey one on TV and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it was also very interesting to hear Tyler, the creator, who's... Mm -hmm. Part of a like alt rap collective called Odd Future, mm -hmm. do a like a rap theme song, kind of taking a play from the Despicable Me Pharrell playbook. Did you also see as they were dropping this trailer? Evidently, Pharrell is the narrator. Oh no, I had I did not see that. Yeah, I still have Boris Karloff and Anthony Hopkins in my head. Right. Given Illuminations Entertainment, I'm I'm willing to give this one a try, but I look at these trailers and I'm not there yet. Right. Now, speaking of trailers, though, to, to completely contrast that, what is it? Just yesterday, the trailer for Murray Poppins Returns dropped, and the animation world kind of lost its mind because right in the middle of this trailer is hand-drawn animation. Not only hand-drawn animation, but we've got Emily Blunt sort of tweaking the beak of a penguin. Not just a penguin, but a penguin that tries to ape the look of Disney animation from the 1960s, you know, back in the, the heavy line xerography age. And 
What was your take on the trailer? Well, I thought it was pretty amazing, and I want to break some news here on the podcast if I can. We always love doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the animated sequences were actually worked on by both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios, which is the first time that I think I've ever heard of them working that closely together on something. That is amazing news. I had Since the, the companies came together in 2006, I don't think I've heard of them ever collaborating on something. Well, that goes to show you just what a huge corporate priority mm-hmm. this movie is, because the whole company is getting behind it in every way. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see the news about a possible spinner ride in England and Epcot? And so I think it's going to be big. But those animated sequences look great. I totally agree. And in talking with people about this project, when it finally officially began to chug and Mark Platt, the producer, was working with Rob Marshall, they knew that they had to have on the back of Jolly Holiday that, and how beloved that was in the 64 film, that they needed an animation se- animated sequence and more to the point that it had to be hand-drawn. But... In talking with people who worked on the original film, the animated stuff was the toughest thing in the movie, in the original Mary Poppins to make. And, and when you consider that they spent six weeks rehearsing Step in Time before they it ever went before the cameras, I mean, that's really saying something, that they thought that the animation was the toughest part. In fact, there's a wonderful story that Frank Thomas tells that he and Ollie Johnston shared the penguins in Mary Poppins. Ollie did all of the footage where the penguins were waiters, where Frank did only handle the stuff where they were dancing with Dick Van Dyke. And the story that Frank would tell is that the problem was that Walt had told Robert Stevenson, the, the director of the live action side of Mary Poppins, that, eh, don't worry about it. You, your job is to shoot the best possible footage and the animators will then figure out how to do the penguins. And so here's Frank Thomas and he's watching the raw footage. And it's like, where the hell am I going to put my penguins? Dick Van Dyke keeps stepping on them. He's got these storyboards that, you know, everybody agreed to as they were shooting the scenes. And it's like, I know where Dick has placed his feet and, you know, the footage I have, I can't do what you, you want me to do. And in the end, what Frank had to do was create the, the performance that we know and love today, where the penguins are constantly sort of ducking Dick's feet or stepping out of the way or that sort of thing as they dance with him, because that was the creative compromise. That was the only way the scene worked. In the weird sort of way, the challenge made it that much more magical. For me, it wasn't so much Emily Blunt tweaking the, the, the penguin's nose as the little bit of footage later where they had the giant sort of supercalifragilistic number where they seem to be backed up by dozens of hand-drawn animals. So yeah, can't wait to see which song from Mark Shaman's score that, you know, that this number is done to. But but like you, you said, this is a corporate priority and Disney hopes that this is a huge hit when it hits theaters in uh, December 19th of this year. And, and speaking of huge hits, between the last time you and I recorded, Drew, Incredibles became Pixar's highest grossing film of the worldwide box office. Uh, to date, this movie has made $1,180,000,000, uh, that's the amount of you know, tickets it sold worldwide, which which means that it beat the one billion twenty eight million that Finding Dory made back in 2016, as well as the one billion. Sixty-six million that uh, Toy Story three earned back in two thousand ten. Wow! It got Rotten Tomatoes' freshest rating of ninety four. The original got back in uh, November two thousand four got a ninety seven. So it's in the same ballpark. And the audience satisfaction score for that thing, the, the sequel is eighty seven percent versus the seventy five that 
the original Incredibles got. So the world seems to love it, which is why I, I'm almost reluctant to bring this up. But do you know the Monty Python? They made an album that they literally called their contractual obligation album. <laughs> this is something they did in 1980 because they, they literally owed one final record to Charisma Records off of a contract they signed in the 1970s. And I know I'm really the minority opinion here, but Incredibles 2 feels to me like Brad Bird's contractual obligation album. <laughs> I feel like he made this sequel because Tomorrowland lost so much money for Walt Disney Studios. I mean, depending on who you talk to, it that George Clooney movie lost $100 million to $120 million. And Wow. For me, the whole Helen and Bob switch places, and now it's Elastigirl who goes out and was being the superhero while Mr. Incredible has to stay home and take care of the kids. It just, it seems kind of tame and safe choices. And the weird thing is that Brad himself seems to be pretty ambivalent when it comes to sequels. I mean, there's this tweet he put out there on August 27th where he, he starts off by saying that some of the best films made today are sequels and they are hard to do well, but sadly they seem to be the only movies of size and ambition that Hollywood will make now. And, that's not only sad, it's short-sighted and stupid, which I kind of agree. <laughs> I'd love to see Brad Bird do something really original. I mean, I, I think he's an amazing filmmaker. I, you know, The Iron Giant is, is one of my favorite things ever. Likewise, The Original Incredibles. I guess I'm going to have to give <laughs> Incredibles to another try when it comes out on... The digital HD version is October 23rd, and the Blu-ray and DVD hit stores shelves on, on November 5th. And I mean, at the very least, I have to do this for the Aunt Edna short that, that's on it, which, which shows what happens when Edna Mode actually babysat for Jack-Jack. That whole scene's off screen there. What did you, you know? It, it, well, I, I loved it the first time I saw it. I, I do agree that it's him trying to get back to a more comfortable place within the company. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot like Finding Dory coming off the heels of John Carter. Mm -hmm. It's almost the exact same situation. And now Andrew Stanton is directing episodes of Better Call Saul. Did you see that? Last week's episode was directed by well, Finding Dory director Andrew Stanton. Yeah. So I agree. I want to see something original from him mm -hmm. between Ghost Protocol and this. He's done two sequels now, so I'm ready for him to do something original. Well, here's hoping that we, I think we talked earlier about 1906. If you know, Especially, yeah. again, in this Hulu, Amazon, Netflix universe. I mean, with... One of these streaming services that had deep pockets, you know, I would just love for them to pile up the dough and say, come here and make that story. But don't feel like you have the two hour, two and a half hour constraint. You know, if you need six hours, you need 10 hours, tell that story right. Well, you know, when I talked to him for, for the Incredibles 2 press day, mm -hmm. it sounded like he was approached by Disney to do 1906 as a as some kind of miniseries, potentially I think, as like a prestige project for the upcoming Disney streaming service. And he kind of said that he wasn't interested because he likes the theatrical experience of going and seeing a movie on the biggest screen possible. But here's hoping he changes his mind and we get more Brad Bird content sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I guess for now, we'll just have to make do with the Aunt Edna short. And Speaking of shorts, let's just take a short break here before we would talking about television and streaming services and we'll pivot now to talking about what's going on in the television space so hang in there folks we'll be right back 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. We've been talking about breaking stories for the day. Just this morning, Avatar The Last Airbender, we found out that Netflix is going to revive this or reboot this as a live action series. Yeah. And how do we feel about that, Drew? <laughs> well, speaking of woe-begotten live-action versions, if you'll recall the M. Night Shyamalan mm-hmm. version of the show, which was absolutely terrible, mm-hmm. it's hard to not think about that when you hear live-action Avatar, but this is going to be with the original creators. They're going to oversee the show. So that makes me hopeful, but it's hard to forget about that 2010 Americanized version that that M. Night Shyamalan and Paramount Pictures put out. Did you watch that version? (laughs) I was there right with M. Night right up until I want to say The Happening, Uh (laughs) the one where the plants are trying to kill us. And I kind of went on a sabbatical for a while. I mean, I, I was one of those idiots who, in the theater, when Sixth Sense gets to its big reveal and get a get it's home. I actually, you know, Nancy still makes fun of me because you know, it was one of these things I actually said out loud, oh my God, in a crowded <laughs> theater of people. And I was the only boo who said it. So, I mean, I, I appreciate his craft and I'm happy to see him sort of on the comeback trail now. But yeah, that movie was one of those ones where it's like, I will stand outside of this and if it ever turns up on TNT or TBS on a Sunday afternoon and I'm not doing laundry... I'll watch it. It's right. So far, those planets have not aligned. <laughs> right. I go out of my way for good stuff on television. In fact, it kind of amazes me that you live out in L.A. and you do what you do for a living. And how is it that you have not yet watched BoJack Horseman? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jim, you weren't supposed to. You weren't supposed to blow up my spot like I, that. Well, you know, no. But, uh... I mean, it's, it's been on out there since August of 2014, and it's like. It's literally in in your wheelhouse. I mean, if, if you of all people would get ninety nine point nine 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 percent of every joke, every industry reference with this thing. <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch it right now. It's the fifth season of the show. You do have the opportunity to sort of pick up from the beginning because it's debuting in syndication on on the twenty sixth of September. In fact, this is kind of a big deal because it's the first Netflix series. That's actually shifted from that streaming service over to traditional cable. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And if you're you're serious about really wanting to dig into the thing, there is this absolutely amazing coffee table book. It's called Bojack Horseman, The Art Before the Horse. Came out in July of, of this year. It's written by Chris McDonald and, and, and published by Abrams and Honest Drew. It's one of the best making of books I've ever read. It, it as far as it would in discussing all of the decisions that go into creating a, an animated series for television. And, and really, that's saying a lot, given that I don't know if you've seen the Go Team Venture, the art and, and making of the Venture Brothers book that Dark Horse put out. I have gazed oh. at it from afar in, in Barnes & Noble. Oh, my God. My friend Ken Plume actually wrote this thing. He's been working on it for years. Seriously, it's 376 
pages long. Every single solitary aspect of every single episode is discussed in this thing. And it goes into how Jackson Public and Doc Hammer put that show together. And Well, I think I actually need the book now because have you been watching this latest season? Oh, it's so insanely complicated. No, exactly. The, just the whole arc with the monarch. And yeah, I feel like I need to be sitting there with a whiteboard. You know, it's like, all right, hang on. Got to take that note down. And I mean, it's this infinitely layered, dark adult comedy. And same thing with BoJack. As enthusiastic as I am about both these shows, I'm always hesitant to tell friends to go watch them now because I, I worry that it's kind of a lost situation. You know right. how you know, in the latter seasons of Lost, it got so into the mythology and so into the characters that a, a casual viewer just couldn't walk into the show and pick up the threads. I mean, it was, it was so in the weeds at that point. And that's the thing both with BoJack and, and Venture Brothers. In fact, BoJack, especially this season, I mean, if, for, for example, there is this absolutely amazing, groundbreaking episode in this season of BoJack. It's, it's, I'm not going to give anything away. It's just called Free Churro. But okay. it's one of these things where if you don't know prior to watching this episode that the tortured, convoluted relationship that Bojack had with his mom, Beatrice Elizabeth Horseman, none of this stuff lands. You sit right. there for 22 minutes of television, like, is this, you know, what is this rant about? Why is he talking the way he's talking? Or for that matter, the backstory of the entire season, basically, which is this really ambitious, brave, ballsy take on, on what's going on with Me Too and Time's Up. They sort of allude to this is the thing that Bojack almost did in the eleventh episode of season two. And honestly, if you don't know who Penny Carson is, a lot of the back and forth for like the you know, the last six episodes of this season aren't going to make any sense to you. Mm -hmm. And that coupled with the fact that the creator of Bojack Horseman, Raphael Wexberger, he really doesn't want. Bojack to become a Walter White from Breaking Bad or a Tony Soprano from The Sopranos, you know, the, the anti-hero that you eventually come to like and grow and admire. He he wants Bojack to be the, well. Bojack the, himself doesn't believe that he's redeemable. Like you know, he actually you know, there, there's a line in the season. I've done so many unforgivable things because we have so many Disney fans. I guess I should point out what's particularly bizarre about this incredibly dark piece of of animation is that it's it's produced by the Torontic uh, company, which is Michael Eisner's privately held... That's the investment firm he set up after he stepped down from Disney in September 2005. What's really great about the name Torontic is that it actually, in Italian, it, it, it translates to, to hairpin turn that Michael evidently was bicycling in, in Italy after he retired from Disney. And saw the sign and thought, well, hell, you know, I, I spent all my time doing family-friendly stuff at Disney, and now I'm about to do more adult-based content with this new company I'm setting up. Like, that's a great name, Hairpin Turn. And so that's what he's done. Though Raphael swears up and down this is not true. There's a <laughs> lot of people in the industry who basically believe that BoJack was kind of inspired by Bob Sackett playing the, <laughs> the dad on, you know, Full House. But, you know, anyone who's actually seen him do stand-up knows <laughs> what a dark, filthy material is in a lot of his routines. 
what Bob Waxberg says, supposedly the mythology of the show is he rose to stardom on the back of a an ABC sitcom called Horse and Around, where, you know, this horse adopts three orphans. And it, it really has sort of a Fuller House, who's the boss, kind of a vibe. And, you know, it could have been part of the TJF lineup, but it's, a, it's insistent it's not, he's not Bob Saget. Right. Or Tony Danza or, you know, Dave Collier and that sort of thing. But <laughs> Well, I, I promise I will start watching it's it. It's definitely worth the work. There's 60 episodes in at this. You're, you're going to have to put oh some time God. in, but <laughs> but seriously, it, living yeah. out in LA, you you you, you know, it's, it's it's such a laser focused on the industry. It's really, really, really worth taking a look at, worth experiencing. Before I forget, I know we had talked about Hotel Transylvania and Gennady Tartakovsky. Yes. Did you see that it's official now that Hotel Transylvania three? Summer Vacation has become the highest grossing film in Sony Pictures animation history? No, I did not see that. I was actually wondering how it was doing because you didn't really hear that much about it when it was released over the summer, but that makes me very happy to hear. Did you did you ever end up seeing the movie? I am supposedly getting a review copy of the Blu-ray DVD, which I know people talk about how stupid executives in the corner suite are, but you really have to give it to the folks at Sony about what they did this time around with the Hotel Transylvania movie. I mean, the, the first two were both released in late September of 2012 and 2015, if I'm remembering correctly. And they did okay business, but the idea was that you're putting out sort of a Halloween-themed movie in, in the window just before Halloween. And so it's like, okay, I get it. You know, you, you did decent business there. But this time around, Sony really took a chance by dropping the movie in mid-July. When you think about how packed this summer was for films, that was a real roll of the dice, particularly with a third in a series. Because they drop it there, it ends up doing $500 million worldwide. And the best part of it is, at least from Sony's point of view, is, so when does the movie come out on digital HD? It's, it's the exact same window when they put out the original Hotel Transylvania and Hotel Transylvania 2. And then just a couple of weeks later, I think it's October 6th, the Blu-ray DVD drops. So they still get the same Halloween buying power. The parents will pick it up to show their kids at home. So they get to double dip for the first time. And you had heard we're talking with Kennedy, right, that this is his last one, right? Yes. I yes. can't imagine with that number, though, that... It's Sony's going <laughs> to shut this down. Well, I mean, we heard that he has those two sort of more adult movies mm. coming from him. There's an R-rated comedy, and then there's a kind of Samurai Jack-ish project called Black Knight. So he certainly got that freedom justly mm -hmm. by, you know, lining the, the pockets of Sony Pictures Animation with this huge movie it ended up being. I don't get... How vampire movies make this much money? I mean, I, or for that matter, vampire television? I mean, have you seen this thing that Disney put on Disney Junior Vampirina? No, I know that she's coming to the parks this Well, Halloween. that's the thing, Drew. I mean, seriously, I have never seen Disney move this fast on any IP in my entire life. This show, which, by the way, is put together by the Chris McNee, the, the Doc McStuffins people. Oh, okay. This was evidently their follow-up project to that success at Disney Jr. And I guess this was the series of books that they did for Disney Hyperion Publishing, but at that point, I guess it was called Vampirina Ballerina. Okay. They announced that they're going to do an animated series based on this character for Disney Jr. That gets announced in 2016. 
The show drops October of last year. This has all happened in, in 11 months. Show does so well. It winds up having 49 million viewers over 115 different countries. So by January, they've already announced they're going to go with a second season of the show. And then, unprecedented, they haven't even launched the second season. And they announced last month, oh, did we mention season three? They're priming the pipe for this thing. And meanwhile, Disney Consumer Products and Interactive Media, they get this full retail program out the door in six months. I mean, I don't know if you've been to your local Disney store lately, but there's this wall now of floor-to-ceiling of Vampirina dolls, plush, role-playing toys, play sets. And like you said, the, the character is going into the park. In fact, started at Disneyland on September 7th. And the walk-around, cute-slash-creepy walk-around character <laughs> debuts at Walt Disney World as part of the Disney Junior play-and-dine experience at Hollywood Studios. But yeah, that's September 30th. And Have you watched the show? I have not yet, and I feel bad <laughs> that I haven't, because what initially put it on my radar is that Lauren Graham of Gilmore Girls fame is voicing her mom, and... James Vanderbeek of Dawson's Creek was brought in to voice the dad. And it was like, I mean, it has some really funny ideas. You know, the, the family has has moved from Transylvania to Pennsylvania. I and like because that. they are vampires, <laughs> they have opened, instead of an Airbnb, a scare B&B. It sounds genuinely funny on paper, but the fact that Disney has so quickly embraced this character, in fact, the very first place they put her in, there's this traveling show right now that's making its way around the States called the Disney Dune Junior Dance Party on Tour. And to give you some idea of the target audience for the show, Drew, it's sponsored by Huggies Pull-Up Training Pants, oh, which good. is, of course, my favorite brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's swinging through the New England States now as part of this 100-date tour. But they put her front and center, and the two- to five-year-olds who watch Disney Junior just absolutely love her. But I guess the moral of the story is kids like weird. I mean, for those of us who love SpongeBob, that's not really breaking news. <laughs> I'm just I'm just amazed it's already gotten more seasons than Gravity Falls. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, clearly Alex Hirsch just did not appeal to the Huggies pull-up market. No. That's where you can make your mistake, so... All right. Anything else from you know, the, the wonderful world of animation? I mean, no, we were we were both looking at Hilda. Yes, we isn't that a cute trailer? And from what I understand, they've done an absolutely brilliant job of of adapting the graphic novels that it's it's based on. So, and I guess the other thing you know is that Cartoon Saloon, mm -hmm. who did Secret of the Kells mm -hmm. and Song of the Sea. Their new movie is going to be put out by Amazon Studios, which is sort of interesting. No, is it no, is it Amazon or Apple? A oh, it's Apple. Okay. okay, so Apple has has picked up the latest project from Cartoon Saloon, who did Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. I mean, I really think that the streaming area is going to be really interesting for animation coming up. Just last night, the Emmys, the, the Marvelous Mrs. Mazelle. Basically, that was a clean sweep for Amazon. It, yeah. That's Amazon going head-to-head -head with NBC, CBS, ABC, let alone HBO. You know, all of the supposedly giants of this industry. And what's happening? It's it's the streaming services that are doing all of the interesting stuff. All of the stuff that's being 
selected for awards. Did you watch the Emmys last night, or...? I sort of did. They were pretty boring. Well, all except for one moment when Rick and Morty came out. Did you catch that? (laughs) No, I didn't see that. Oh, it was this this glorious moment where they were presenting the award for reality television, and and Morty was talking about we're obviously the appropriate hosts for this section because nobody's been to more realities than myself and my grandfather. And Rick immediately (laughs) says, sorry, Morty, I'm going off prompter. And he proceeds to pull out in his hand, a live Emmy, which, you know, it turns out it's a sentient being that the Academy <laughs> of Television has been dipping in, in molten gold for years and building trophies out of. And it's like, he just explained that, you know, it, it's sentient. And, and not only that, Rick asked it at one point, you know, did it have a show that it was rooting for that night? And it said, sure, it was rooting for Atlanta because it had smaller crews and it was shot locally. <laughs> Rick gets his presentation. Anyone who wins tonight is a monster. And the winner is... <laughs> I guess I love the fact that we live in a time when you can get that sort of edgy humor coming out of an animated character. If you look at BoJack, if you look at Adventure Brothers, or for that matter, Rick and Morty, and the sorts of stories they're telling, and as gross as they can sometimes be. In fact, how were you watching the Venture Brothers with the whole... When the platform was severing people's upper bodies and all that. <laughs> I was okay with it. You sign on for Venture Brothers, you're going to get some something wild. But the other thing that I guess we can talk about is that by the time this comes out, the embargo will have broken for Wreck-It Ralph, uh, the long lead day that we both went to in Burbank. Yep. So is there anything from that day that you want to share that we could that we were so under embargo about earlier that we couldn't well, talk about that we can talk yeah, about? Yeah, let's let's talk about what Pamela Ribbon, who was the screenwriter of Ralph Breaks the Internet, had to say about the scene that everyone seems to be talking about from that film, the one that is making the trailer, is Vanellope meeting with the Disney princesses. Right. The story that Pamela told was that there have been so many things done with the Disney princesses and Really, the truth hadn't been told about these characters. She wanted to sort of step back and do a take on the, these characters that had never been done before. You've seen some of this scene in the trailers, I'm sure, but she, yeah, she wanted to give like kind of an interior life to these characters. Was she the one that was actually wearing the Disney princess slippers I, uh, on I that day? Or was that someone so, else? I believe so. Because, yeah. because again, it, this whole scene comes from a place of love, but at the same time, it's. Well, as she put it, as she was writing the scene, she said, this is the scene that's going to get me fired. Because <laughs> I'm having the Disney princesses talk about, you rescued by a big, strong man, and everyone thinks it's all right now? And it's like, yes, what's up with that? And the weird thing is, she brought it to Disney, and I want to say, they only made her cut, like, one line? I'm trying to remember which character. I'll have to go back over the audio to find out. I think it was actually a line uh, related to Jasmine. Oh, really? The one thing that Disney management sort of dug their heels in about. But everything else she wrote, everything else where the Disney princesses were self-aware and had senses of humor and that sort of thing, they embraced. If you think about what it took to create that scene, to to translate those characters, you know, and remember, some of these characters, if we're talking Snow White, that's all the way back to 37. They've never been done in CG, and certainly not in a way that makes them available to stand right alongside, say, Anna and Elsa or Moana. Right. A lot of time and effort went into the scene to make it work. 
here's a little bit of animation. You know, so you see that sh- opening shot where it shows the, the animation studio, kind of the digital representation mm-hmm. in the internet. And there's a Sorcerer Mickey on top of the apprentice, Sorcerer Mickey's hat, mm-hmm. I guess. And that animation was done by none other than the one and only Mark Henn. Oh, so when you see right. that 2D Mickey yeah. in Wreck-It Ralph, that's where it comes from. I also love the fact that right outside of the Disney sort of sector of the internet, there's a bunch of cheap motels, <laughs> which is a lot like Disneyland. Uh, I noticed that on this last viewing of it, but just really great stuff. What brought this to mind over the, the last couple of days is a brand new trailer for Kingdom Hearts 3 dropped. I don't know if you've seen this, but this is the first time that Sora and and his team have been able to stand alongside Disney characters, and they all look right. Particularly uh-huh. the scene where they're, they're appearing with the cast of Big Hero 6. Oh yeah, I saw that. And it's the first time ever you really didn't have to do a lot of sort of bending of a, a model to get it to work, to fit in you know the CG world that Kingdom Hearts is set in. We are definitely living in interesting times, animation-wise, folks. <laughs> Speaking of interesting times, remember in November, if you want to get in at something really, really fun, Drew and I are going to be down at Walt Disney World with the nice folks from Storybook Destinations, and we are doing our Pixar in the Park event. We're going to all four parks. We're going to talk up the history of how various rides and shows came into the park. We're going to have games, going to have competitions, and... We're even going to record a live episode of this show in front of an audience. So we'd love to have you folks there. If you think it's exciting listening to this podcast, imagine what it's like watching I think is what... (laughs) Again, just want to advise, don't sit in the first two rows because that's the splash zone. Right. (laughs) No, it's going to be really fun. I can't wait. I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to spend a week with you, Jim, quite frankly. We'll have to talk with Katie about that. (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, folks, that that about does it for this this episode of Fine Tuning. Thanks again for listening in. On behalf of uh, myself and Mr. Taylor, we'll be back again soon. All right. Take care. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.